Cornucopia Radio presents Joan Woodhouse was a 27-year-old librarian living and working in London. She was deeply religious. These are just a few of the strict rules of life she imposed upon herself. I will offer my day's work to God on waking, pray for at least five minutes in the morning and at least ten minutes at night, say the company office and the society prayer each midday, make an examination of the day's work each evening, be at Mass on Sundays and make my communion at least once each week. On Saturday, 31st July 1948, this bright, thoughtful, considerate young woman left her lodgings in London to travel home to Barnsley to visit her father, but she never arrived in the Yorkshire town. On Tuesday 10th August 1948, her partially clothed body was discovered in Arundel Park. She had been raped and strangled. Why was she in Arundel Park? And who had attacked her so brutally? Join the True Crime Investigators UK for the final part of this series as they try to uncover the answers. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years, working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years and then retrained as a lawyer and practised in criminal law. Now they are both retired and review cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. Throughout this series, they will discuss the cases they are reviewing and interview relevant parties, including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts. Thank you for joining us again and coming on our journey to try to get some answers to the questions that have arisen during this case. We were contacted by Martin Knight, the author of the book Justice for Joan, The Arundel Murder, and that's the story of the murder of Joan Woodhouse. It's an unsolved case, but it's one that has clearly never left the minds of those who were, and I suppose in some cases still are, affected by this brutal murder. Well, John, if we thought we'd got a hat full of questions after reading Martin's book, we went on to read some others that were relevant to the case. The one that Martin told us about was 40 Years of Murder by Professor Keith Simpson, and he was the pathologist who carried out the post-mortem on Joan's body. Yes, I had seen it in the past, but uh, I thought it was in my book collection, but it wasn't, so we we purchased a new one and had a good read. And it's, it is very enlightening as to what happened with Joan. And then there was two other books that we read, wasn't there? The first one of those was Murder on My Mind by Fred Narborough. And he was the senior investigating officer from Scotland Yard who led the first investigation into Joan's murder. Yes, that one and uh, the subsequent one you're going to mention, Spooners, those were in the case we got from Martin, weren't they? So the family must have purchased those sometime after they came out and you know, continued reading them and trying to find answers as to what had actually happened and, in their view, where the police had gone wrong. The Great Detective by Ian Adamson was a book that he wrote about Reginald Spooner and he was the senior investigating officer, also from Scotland Yard, and he led the second investigation into Joan's murder. Having read all of those books, we came up with quite a few anomalies, didn't we? 
yes, we've got the books in front of us. And if we take them in order, as, as you've just described, the first one, Murder on My Mind by Fred Narborough, that was published in 1959, so some 10 years after Joan's murder. And it, just the title alone interested me because it's called Murder on My Mind because even though he'd retired, and like myself, when we talked about the Michael Pritchard murder, you never forget the cases you've dealt with and you never forget the ones where you haven't been successful. And we found the book quite interesting. It's very informative about this and other cases, but particularly about Joan. But then when we came to look at The Great Detective by Ian Adamson, that threw up all sorts of questions, didn't it? Yes, I mean, we we got the books or we read them, hoping to find some answers for queries we already had in our mind, didn't we, ourselves, when we'd read Martin's yeah. book. So when we read the Spooner book, and it's called The Great Detective, and of course, when he retired, he was deputy commander, having been promoted several times from superintendent, which he was when Jones' murder took place. And it's a very fascinating book because it, it goes through his career. But it was written three years after he died, wasn't it? Yeah, at least a couple of years after he died uh, by this author, Ian Adamson. And the book is completely at odds with what Fred Narborough and Professor Simpson had to say about Joan's murder. Yes, when we get to that part of his book, he basically contradicts Narborough and Professor Simpson in the fact that he, he comes to the conclusion that it wasn't a murder at all. It was a suicide and Jonah committed suicide, which took me aback. And when I showed it yourself, we couldn't understand why there was this great gap between himself and the other two people involved. And it puzzled us greatly, didn't it? It did. And first of all, take his criticisms of Fred Narborough. It's really quite unprofessional for one senior investigating officer to criticise another. You may have some criticism and you might air that privately, but to go so public is is quite unusual, isn't it? I thought so, because, you know, we've been involved in major investigations with senior police officers. And if you've got an opinion that contradicts what they think, they would listen to your side of the argument. And, and if it was a valid point, they might take it on board and, you know, look elsewhere. So the way we operated in the police, it was like a pooled resources, wasn't it? Everybody had thoughts and ideas and the senior officers got to make the final decision, obviously. But I, I was really took aback that that would be in a book that allegedly must have come from Spooner. And also in The Great Detective, Spooner suggests that Professor Simpson's got it wrong. And that's really that's really quite a sweeping statement to make, isn't it? Because he's a policeman and Keith Simpson is the pathologist uh, of many years standing. So to say that Dr Simpson's come to the conclusion that it's a rape and a strangulation, and he puts that on one side and says, actually, I think it was a suicide. And we must bear in mind that... The book was actually written by a third party, wasn't it? After Spooner's death. So immediately we've got, where's this information coming from that Spooner's saying the fact that it was a suicide and not a murder and contradicting everybody else? And interestingly, when you read Keith Simpson's book, towards the end, after he's described what he saw at the scene and his findings and his conclusions that it is murder or rape, he says then, Spooner did not consult me about my findings which was a surprising omission for a detective of his standing. 
considering the clear import of my post-mortem report. Even more remarkable was Spooner's own conclusion. He said he thought Joan Woodhouse was neither raped nor murdered, but lay down in the cops alone and committed suicide by taking sleeping tablets. This was absurd. The body was too decomposed for a satisfactory analysis, but in view of the injuries, no real question of her taking an overdose of drugs seemed even remotely likely. It was clearly from the autopsy findings that she'd been sexually assaulted and strangled. And he goes on to say then why Spooner, who, bearing in mind Spooner and other senior detectives, worked hand in glove with pathologists like Keith Simpson. They all knew each other, didn't they? Spooner, Narborough and Simpson, they all knew each other because they worked many a case together. And of course, Simpson quite clearly is quite hurt by what Spooner's book has revealed. But of course, it's after Spooner's death. So we don't know where that information's come from. And you can't blame Keith Simpson, the pathologist, really, because it's bringing into question his professional integrity. He He's a medical man and Reginald Spooner is a policeman. So it's it's almost stick to what you know. Martin told us that when he was researching his book, he saw a police file relating to the murder in his local records office. We definitely need to get a look at that file, don't we? Well, all we deal with is facts where we can find facts. Supposition, myths and rumours aren't part of what we're about, is it? And, And we know from our background that what initially seems like a story is very often an amalgamation of many different things. But we deal in facts and we need to get to the facts if we can. When we get to see this file at the records office, I'm really hoping that there's something like a statement or a report from Spooner himself that explains what his conclusions were. I've actually written a list of some of the things that I'd like to get from the police file. And I'd like to find, you know, sort of statements from John Woodhouse or from the aunts, because we've always been told um, throughout this case that Joan, on that Saturday, the 31st of July, was going to travel to Barnsley to see her family. It'd be interesting if there is a statement from her dad, John Woodhouse, or from the aunts, that actually says what the arrangements were for that weekend. When did they expect her? And when she didn't turn up, why didn't they raise the alarm earlier? Because the alarm wasn't raised until the following Tuesday when she didn't turn up for work. That's another thing that I've been mulling over. Why didn't the family report or ring or contact the YWCA and say... Is Joan there? We're expecting her here and she's not here. Has has something happened? So that's one of the main things to look for. Yeah, there's there's another thing that we haven't really got an answer to. And that's, we know that she carried out what's referred to as war work in Sheffield. And that's where she met her friend, Lena Bamber. And there's kind of been some suggestion that she may have carried on doing similar work in peacetime. And although 1948's after World War Two, there's still quite a lot of covert, undercover work going off, isn't there? Particularly in that southeast corner of England. Well, certainly, although the Second World War was over, we were in the period of the Cold War starting. And as we know, 
from my history reading of espionage and the background of all these type of things, it was thought that, you know, we don't stop all this work going on because we might be in a similar place shortly with the Cold War. But the other interesting thing, although we're sceptical about Spooner's book, because what's gone on with, you know, Joan and the comments that allegedly Spooner made, a lot of his book covers that he was heavily involved in espionage work himself, the capture of spies and people who were collaborating with the Germans on the south coast of England, because, of course, they expected if the Germans are going to attack, they would go onto the south coast, southeast coast, and there was a lot of undercover and military work going on there, and Spooner was clearly heavily involved in that. might be a complete tangent from the murder, but it's a bit of interest that's growing in my mind that is there more to this story than we know already? Is is there a reason that she went to the southeast corner of England? Is there a reason she went to Arundel? She may have been a courier, and, and I know I'm thinking ahead of myself there, but, you know, we've, we've got to keep an open mind as to what were her reasons for travelling to where she travelled to. What else have we got to look at in the archive? The aunts were very avid letter writers, weren't they? And they wrote to MPs and the Attorney General and the DPP. And throughout those letters, there's some suggestion that there wasn't a thorough investigation carried out. And if you think about when we spoke to Martin, well, two things that he said, either an unwillingness to carry out an investigation or an inability to carry out an investigation. And the inability seems to suggest that they weren't doing a proper job. So what I'd like to see when we get to the records office is some report or statement that actually explains what they did do, both in the first investigation and Spooner's second investigation. You know, was it a thorough inquiry? Was no stone left unturned? The inability seems to suggest a level of incompetence. And just thinking about this unwillingness as Martin referred to, an unwillingness to carry out an investigation. There was actually some rumour and speculation in Arundel that Thomas Stilwell was the illegitimate son of the then Duke of Norfolk. And to avoid Thomas being processed through the courts for such a serious offence and the trouble that that would bring with it, that he somehow influenced the police, so almost suggesting a cover-up. Yes, Another strange piece of this jigsaw that we're now sort of getting to grips with, that influence may have been brought on the police inquiry because of the status and the wealth and the power of the Duke. Another thing that also involves the Duke is that after the failed committal, Fox's oven, where the Stillwells lived, they either rented it or it was a, a tithe, cottage but it was it belonged to the Duke of Norfolk's estate that was transferred into Ellen Stillwall's name that's Thomas's mother why would the Duke of Norfolk either sell or transfer or gift a property on his estate to Ellen Stillwall that's a big question and again fuels the fire that there's something more going on with the Duke which is what the the information we're gathering at the moment, that, that that's one area that is suspicious as to why Thomas Stilwell wasn't charged. So there's a lot of things that we need to look for in that file. 
and we need to get some answers to the questions that, that we're posing. Yes, at the moment, it's a, a murky story of many parts. Interference, incompetence by the police. Surely we must find some answers when we start really digging into this and, and uncovering information which proves or disproves what we know so far. Well, let's head to the records office then. Well, here we are, Sally, outside the records office in Chichester on Orchard Street. And you've made some arrangements for our visit today, haven't you? Yeah, I've made an appointment for us to go into the records office for 10 o'clock and we've got all day to be here. Yes, they've really been very helpful, haven't they, here with the COVID restrictions and because we've travelled so far, they've been more than helpful, haven't they? Yeah, I've been emailing regularly and they're all ready for our visit. It's a really useful service operated by local authorities. So if you're conducting research, like we are for the area of Arundel, the archives pertaining to that area are held here at the West Sussex Records Office, which is here at Chichester. And it's the same throughout the country, isn't it? Yes, most counties will hold their own local records and obviously the main national records office is in Kew at uh, London. But the county records offices are really useful source of information, aren't they? Yeah, so whatever geographical area where you're conducting your research, chances are there'll be a records office, and within that records office there'll be a comprehensive archive. And the location here is just ideal, isn't it? We've come by train and we're just on the... It's just in walking distance of the train station, isn't it? Yeah, just on the outskirts of Chichester itself. Uh, the Ring Road is not far away and very convenient for what we want. And the archives will contain, well, all sorts of things, documents, maps, images, newspapers, parish records, private collections, drawings. And uh, the young lady that I was emailing has said that there's a table set aside for us when we go in and the file will be there ready for us to review uh, once we get inside there, and as I've said, we, we're we here all day. Unfortunately, we can't take our recording equipment inside, and, and in fact, the only thing that we can take in is a pencil and some paper, and I guess that's just to protect the integrity of the documents that you're looking at. Yeah, because I'm sure if pens were allowed, they'd be accidentally marking the papers and documents. And the other thing you can do is take photographs, which you have to make an arrangement with them but uh, we couldn't bring our recording equipment to do live recording which is a shame but that's the rules and to get into the records office you have to be a member don't you yeah you apply for what's called an ara card which is the archives and records association and it's free to apply uh, and you apply at the records office they will issue you with a card and that card is valid for five years so I mean, it's a really, really useful tool to have when, like us, you you go to records offices quite regularly. And all this is free of charge, isn't it, which is a fantastic service. And anybody that's interested in doing archive work, all the details are on the internet, and it's fairly straightforward to follow and, and book your place, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, uh, so let's what, see what they've got in store for us, John. Well, we're most excited, aren't we, because we know that 
there is a lot of information in here that will help our investigation. Well, we're certainly hoping so because there are so many questions that we've got and we're just hoping that the file that we're going to look at in the records office uh, will help us answer some of those questions. We're back home having been to the records office and we had a really interesting day, didn't we? And we found out lots of useful and also enlightening information. Yes, it was day well spent looking at the archives and the fascinating anyway, I love archives, but I was surprised how comprehensive the information was that we were allowed to see. It was a massive file, wasn't it? Yes, as we know, people don't appreciate the amount of paperwork that's generated in the murder inquiry because everything is written down, documented and cross-referenced as the murder inquiry evolves so that hopefully information isn't lost and isn't picked up. Well, let's think about the things that we had in our minds before we went down there and, and whether we've managed to give ourselves answers to it. And the first thing that I would say is is the question, was Joan expected home? Because that, that's always been the story, hasn't it? That she was going home to see family over that bank holiday weekend. And always from day one, why was she going to go north to Barnsley and ended up south in Arundel? The first statement that I actually looked at when we started looking at the file was that of Joan's dad, John Woodhouse. His statement was taken on the 13th of August, 1948. Now, that was the Friday. Joan's body had been found on the previous Tuesday and John Woodhouse had been told about the death of his daughter on the Wednesday. So to, to give a statement on the Friday... Things are very fresh in his mind. But he's quite clear in that first statement that he gave that there were no plans for her to travel to visit him on that bank holiday weekend. And I also saw the statements from both aunts and they make no mention of her visiting. But if you also remember, I found another statement from a friend of Joan's called Amelia McMorrow and she was a nursing sister. And she said on that bank holiday weekend, her and Joan had talked about going away for the weekend to either Worthing or Brighton, and that Amelia was going to organise their accommodation. Now, as it turned out, Amelia, I think, had work commitments and she couldn't go. And Joan said, well, it's OK, I'll go on my own. But she also told Amelia that she wouldn't be telling the people at the YWCA that she was going down to the South Coast on her own because, in her words, they're all gossips. So that kind of gives you a reason why she would say to the people at the YWCA, I'm going to go home, I'm going to see my dad. But actually, that's a bit of a, of a cover because I'm going, I'm going to have a weekend on my own down at the seaside. So that's really interesting because we were confused as to why she was going north and ended up going south, why she hadn't been reported missing by the family. It all tends to fit now that they didn't report her missing because they didn't they know she was missing. Her. And it wasn't until the library where she worked rang the hostel and said, where's Joan? She hasn't reported for work today on the Tuesday that they said, well, she's not here. And know then that something's wrong and, and start looking for her and eventually report her missing to the police. Another interesting part of that, though, is by the time we get to the inquest some 
18 months or so later that John Woodhouse then tells the story that he was expecting his his daughter home. And I think he's trying to justify what happened to Joan because if he says she wasn't coming here and everybody now knows that she was going down south, it perpetuates that myth about her, some slur on a character, doesn't it? So I think in 18 months' time, by the time he gets to the inquest, he genuinely believes that she really was coming home. Now, the other thing that we asked ourselves was because of this suggestion that the investigations, both of the investigations, um, Narborough's first investigation and Spooner's second one, were flawed. And we've talked about the inability or the unwillingness for the police to conduct a, a thorough investigation. Well, in that file, we found a report from Spooner, didn't we? Mm. From Reginald Spooner, 180 plus pages uh, where he goes into minute detail about all of the inquiries that were conducted in those two investigations. And I think having spent all of those hours reading that report, we can both put a hand on our hearts and say, through all of the investigations, the inquiries, the leads, the witnesses that they spoke to, no stone was left unturned. No, I mean, we've got to put ourselves in the position of what was happening at that time. Narborough had done the investigation, the family weren't happy and were making some allegations and insinuations that it was a cover-up and they hadn't done the job properly. And writing, as we know from the suitcase we've got, numerous letters to the Director of Public Prosecutions, to Chief Constables, to MPs, to anybody that they could think may help. So clearly the pressure was on the police to, and I would think they had a meeting and said, look, review this but make sure that you cover everything. Have we missed something? Have we misinterpreted something, forgotten something? Now's the time, because these people aren't going to go away, are they? They, they, were, they were really intense, the family were. So that would be Spooner's instructions, I would have thought. Go and review it. If you find anything that hasn't been covered properly, make sure that we cover it now, because we've got to answer this family. You know, people don't realise, did they, Sally, that when police do these inquiries, everything has got to be documented, recorded, so that when this scenario happens, that somebody sometime later, months and years later, said... You didn't do this. You didn't do your job properly because this you haven't followed that lead, that they make sure that they have. That, that's right. And, you know, I don't want to go through the list of all the criticisms and this is the action that they took, because I think, suffice it to say, that the criticisms that were levelled at them, they answered and, and answered fully. But one of the things was that the Lembar bottle, which was the lemon barley drink that Joan purchased in Arundel, and that bottle with just a couple of tablespoons of liquid still in it was found at the scene. And one of the allegations that was made was that the police had lost that. Well, when we looked at the file, I found where it had been seized at the scene and then you can follow it on to the forensic laboratory or, or the scientific laboratory that, that they had at the time. And the bottle was examined 
There was no fingerprints on it. That's not surprising. It had been out in some appalling weather, torrential rain. And also the contents, although they were small, they were tested to see if Joan had taken any medication in that lemon barley drink. And it was found negative. All that the lemon barley bottle contained was lemon barley drink. And thereafter, once they've done as many tests as they possibly can do, they then destroyed the bottle. So it it, it wasn't lost. It was absolutely rigorously tested. And at the end of it all, when the results of their inquiries were negative, that was when it was destroyed. And it's not unusual to destroy an exhibit because you can't store every exhibit for every crime that's committed, can you? And so I think the question that we had was, was there any inability on the police to not conduct a thorough investigation? And I think having read Reginald Spooner's report and also other documents on that file, I would say it was an absolutely thorough investigation. And the interesting thing at Spooner's conclusion was that he believed that Joan had been murdered and raped. The cause of death was by strangulation, as Simpson had described in his pathology report, and that the subsequent police enquiries had highlighted the main suspect as being Thomas Stilwell, who Spooner believed was the main suspect, but there wasn't evidence at that time to proceed, which contradicts completely the entry... The the information in Ian Adamson's book about Spooner... And of course why Professor Simpson was upset because he must have got that book or been told about it after Spooner's death and there's nothing there to suggest that Spooner didn't think like everybody else. He he was thinking exactly the same as everybody else. The conclusion that he comes to in his report is she was strangled, she was raped, she was murdered and the person responsible was likely Stillwell. So so when we went down to the records office, we got this this anomaly that Murky what, water. what had been written about Spooner was that he wasn't on board with all the other professionals involved in the case. And what actually that file shows is, oh, yes, he was. They were all singing from the same hymn sheet. It just shows how rumour and speculation can spark panic and muddy the waters, as I say. Our objective was to get facts, and I think that, as far as Spooner's concerned, answers those questions, doesn't it? It does. The other question we had was around the unwillingness of the police to carry out an inquiry that was thorough. And although we've said it was a thorough inquiry, it was the Duke of Norfolk uh, and that issue that had raised its head and it was rumour and speculation that Thomas Stillwell was his illegitimate son. And having trawled that file, I could find no evidence actually that the Duke of Norfolk was ever involved in the investigation or that there was any connection directly to Thomas Stillwell. No, I'm sure the Duke would have been spoken to to inform him that there was a murder victim in his grounds of his castle and all we can say is there's no evidence that we've seen that points to the duke of norfolk being involved with the stillwell family and that thomas is an illegitimate child however we do know that 
his own father has told people that he isn't his. Now, whether that sparked this rumour that the Duke is the father, combined with the mystery over the cottage being changed hands to the Stilwell family, we cannot sit here today, can we, and say we have evidence to show one way or the other. No, at, at the time it was rumour and speculation, and that's I think that's as, as far as you're going to get with something like that. There was no evidence in that file to suggest that the Duke of Norfolk had any involvement or connection to Thomas Stillwell. But even when we visited recently, didn't we, the people still told us that that was still circulating in the community, that uh, it was a cover-up and the Duke was involved and that threw the police off the trail and the power of this man and whatever. Yes, certainly some of the people, and, and in fairness, not everybody we've spoken to wanted to contribute to the podcast and that's that's fair enough and it just shows you how the myth is just perpetuated and that what was rumor and speculation back in the 1940s is still the subject of local rumor you know 70 odd years later on the other issue which raised a question that involved the duke of norfolk was the issue with fox's oven the house where the Stillwells lived, and that being transferred to Ellen Stillwell. Now, we did find land registry documents that illustrates that in 1952, Fox's oven was indeed transferred to Ellen Stillwell. Not Ellen and her husband, just to Ellen. And Martin suggested that after her death, that the property went back into the Duke of Norfolk's estate. Now, we've spoken to somebody from the land registry about the kind of language that they use on their documents. And having looked at the documents, they suggested that Fox's oven didn't go back to the Duke of Norfolk estate. After Ellen Stillwell died in the 1970s, it went into the ownership of a completely new owner. Like a private individual. A private individual. So it remains that we don't know how Fox's oven came to be transferred to Ellen, but we do know that once it was transferred, it remained with her until her death, and then it was bought, purchased, transferred to a, a new owner. There was also the issue of Joan carrying out what's referred to as war work during the war and the possibility that she may have continued to do some kind of covert work beyond that. What what did you find out about that? When I thought about Ian Adamson's book on Spooner, although reasons were not clear, this story about Joan committing suicide that's in that book, where that came from, we don't know, and what relevance it is, because we now know that Spooner's report was thinking along the lines of everybody else. So why in the book it's different, I don't know. But the interesting thing with his book is his war work with tracing spies and collaborators and he held a rank in the intelligence service as well as the police because at the time, obviously, they needed people like Spooner to be detectives catching these spies. And as soon as I read that and the fact that it was in Sussex, having studied the espionage world, people like Joan were in demand at that time. Obviously, most of the males were away fighting or doing whatever they were doing. They needed intelligent, methodical people to do 
the filing in the intelligence world because like anything else somebody's got to put all this together and of course they use people like Joan as couriers was she going down to Sussex to take some documents a, disp a dispatch call it what we will or was she going to pick something up and bring it back to London and all these things that she was saying about going to Barnsley or a friend going to South Coast for a weekend away was that all a cover for the fact that if anybody saw her in Sussex you know she'd, she'd have an excuse for being there and of course in 1948 none of this was known and of course the police possibly wouldn't have known is that possible that she was doing something like that and is it possible that Spooner with his intelligence background knew about this he would never put that in a police report hence the reason there's or, or a possibility that there's no mention of any kind of intelligence work or courier work being even considered that Joan would be part of in that police file because even if she was part of that world it wouldn't be in there in any event no i mean a father makes reference to her doing secret war work but in fairness i think most people at some stage if they weren't away fighting they were doing something at home which would be clouded in secrecy but, but it's a possibility that's all i would say it's a possibility that she could have been involved in something that we know nothing about and that's why she went to Sussex. So I think as far as we can, those questions that we had when we headed down to the records office, some of the questions we've got definitive answers for and some of the questions have to remain open. But the point is, we went right back to the beginning and we had a look through that file to see where evidence came from or can we evidence what's been suggested to us so i think we've done as much as we can at this moment in time on those questions that were at the forefront of our mind before we went to the records office so having worked our way through the queries that we'd had and the answers that we've got as a result of going to the records office let's think a little bit more about Thomas Stillwell himself, the prime suspect in the murder of Joan. At the time of the murder, he would have been 24 years of age. He was a bit of an oddity in that he was known to follow women and girls and on occasions make lewd suggestions towards them, wasn't he? And, and such is the position of Arundel and Fox's oven, and Arundel Park is in the middle. Yes, as we when we visited, it was quite clear that if somebody was that way inclined, that was an ideal territory to operate in, wasn't it? I mean, it was open countryside, there was wooded areas, there was high ground that you could stand and observe people, and if you were looking at young girls or young women, the opportunities were there in abundance, weren't they? Yeah, because we have this suggestion that he does follow women and, and girls and makes lewd suggestions i thought were there any other complainants for that kind of behavior because he got no previous convictions so i saw one statement that was from a 17 year old and she said that she was walking from offham which is where fox's oven is towards arundel and as she was walking down the road, 
Thomas Stillwell overtook her on his bike and he kept stopping in front of her and just looking back. He didn't say anything to her. And then he carried on riding and he, he disappeared round the corner. And it wasn't until she rounded that corner that she saw his bike on the verge and he was actually stood at the side of the road exposing himself to her. Obviously, young 17-year-old girl gets very frightened by this and quickly gets out of the area. And when she gets down the road, she sees a lady that, that she knows. So she reports what has just happened to this lady that, that she knows. And while she's talking to her, Thomas Stillwell, cool as you like, comes riding his bike past them, doesn't say anything to them. Now, that 17-year-old also tells her mum about this incident, but it's never reported. So... The statement is after the time of Joan's murder. There was a second statement that I saw that was from a 40-year-old lady and she said that she was working on the allotments and Thomas came along and made lewd comments about the fact that he wanted to strip her and throw her in the river for a swim. Again, that statement's taken after Joan's death. So at the time that it happened, it wasn't reported. So quite clearly, people just avoided the man. You know, you would expect different action in 2022 to what happened in 1948. Everybody was sort of, well, Thomas still was a bit on the strange side, just avoid the guy at all costs but also by his own admission, because three statements were taken from him. The first one is, as you would expect, he found the body, he reported it to the police, time and date and all that kind of thing. But statement two and statement three go into much more detail, because by that time, he'd become their prime suspect. And in his statements, he admits himself that he follows women, and girls. He admits spying on women and girls. He also says that he masturbated from the age of 16 and he would follow women and girls and expose himself to them. And on occasions, he would masturbate out in the open air whilst pursuing these girls. He also says, I don't think they saw me, but is kind of that just a caveat to say, I was doing this, this was my behaviour, but I don't think anybody was affected by it. I mean, they, they questioned him for many, many, many hours about, obviously, Joan's murder and clearly trying to get him to say it was him or, you know, it wasn't. And he doesn't admit the murder to Joan, but then he starts admitting this behaviour, doesn't he? Yeah. Which, no doubt, the police were thinking, well, you know, we're on the right lines, but we need more evidence. They were severely criticised about this, weren't they? Yeah, they were severely criticised that, that they hadn't cautioned him at some point. But he was a witness. He was being treated as a witness. And there wasn't sufficient to be able to arrest him, caution him and, and interview him in a more formal way. And the other thing that you always say, you don't have to say anything. I mean, I know the caution's different these days, but... You're saying to people, you don't have to say anything, so you probably won't get anything from them. 
because you've just told them they don't have to say anything. So these statements were just eliciting information from him so that they could actually get a story from him. And I think hopefully build on that information and eventually find enough evidence to, to charge him with the murder. But they never got that far. In relation to whether he saw Joan or not, in those statements, he, and it's fair to say that, that the statements make very difficult reading mm. because he says something and then he reneges on it and he says something and then he reneges on it. And he says things like he, when he was in the park and he's, he's shown a photograph of Joan, uh, is that the lady that you saw when you were in the park? And he says, I saw a lady in the park. I spoke to her and she ignored me and carried on walking. And I thought, buggy her. And when the photograph shown to him, is that the lady that you spoke to? Initially, he identifies Joan as being the person that he spoke to. But shortly afterwards, he, he says, no, I think I must be mistaken. So all the time, it's it's offering that information and then taking it back again. There is comment about a confession. And, you know, I use that word uh, loosely because he makes the comment in one of his statements that he thinks that he was responsible for Joan's demise and the way that he explains that is that because he spoke to her and he frightened her or worried her, that's when she made her way into box cops and that's where she met her death. So it's not a confession as such. It's my actions led her to that place where somebody else did that to her. So although they refer to that as a confession, even with the best will in the world, I don't think you can take that as a confession. But strangely, after he'd said that, he then said that he didn't want to say anything without a solicitor being present. I mean, the feeling we've got from some people we spoke to in Arundel was that he was quite streetwise and a bit cunning, wasn't he? So if he, he was guilty, he's no doubt trying to muddy the waters, give himself some alibi opportunities, confuse the issue, you know, not sure whether he was there or was, and change his story. But whatever he said, the facts are still there, aren't they? There was no forensic evidence at all that proved he murdered her. There's no eyewitnesses. Yes, they saw him in the park. It's a massive place. They yeah. saw him in the park. He admits being in the park. He admits to talking to somebody who he thought was Joan, but then changes his mind. But the main thing about putting him in the park at a particular time or on a particular day is that the pathologist who we've talked about, um, Keith Simpson, he says that she's been dead between eight and 10 days. So that doesn't pinpoint medically the time of her death to that Saturday. So yes, you can put him in the park, but the medical evidence is that you can't say that that is the day that Joan died. It's assumed that that's the day that she died because there was no sightings of her after Saturday the 31st of, of July. Yes, and without that information or an admission, you've got nothing else, have you? The other thing, when he reports finding the body and the police go to the scene, one of his darts is found at the scene. But the comment made about the dart was that it was unrusted and cleaned, suggesting it had only just been dropped because it had rained heavily for the days before that. 
So his explanation for that will be, well, I was at the scene because I found her and that's when my unrusted and clean dart must have fell out my pocket. So you can see all the circumstantial pieces of evidence coming into it, but there's just not that direct evidence. And it, you, you can take somebody to court on circumstantial evidence. I mean, people have been convicted of murders where no body's been found, but they've got lots of other direct evidence. But in this case, there was no direct link between Joan Woodhouse and Thomas Stillwell. No. However, over the years, a number of people have come forward to admit Joan's murder. And this all goes back to the issue about not giving out all the information that you have about an inquiry. And it's it's a well-established fact that, that some people do admit to things that they haven't done, yes. even many years later. And for various reasons. Sometimes they're mentally ill, sometimes they're wanting some attention. There's all sorts of different reasons. But it goes back to the only people who know what happened was the deceased and the murderers or murderer. So when they come and admit to it, the first question they're asked is, well, how did you commit this murder? And that's where they fall because they don't know. They make up some scenario of their own in their own minds and trip it out as being, this is what I did. And of course, when the facts are checked, it's nothing like the true cause of death. And very often they just crumble and say, well, I've just made it up. But, you know, I'm having a, some kind of crisis or whatever. And they aren't the murderers. But a great deal of police time is put into investigating these people. And it just shows that if the full facts were published, it'd be very difficult to find out who was making it up and who was the actual murderer. Bearing in mind at the time, of course, it was a hanging offence. So it's amazing, but these people exist and, and they're there again in the archive, aren't they? Some of the cases going back many, many years. Yeah, yeah. And you can't believe it that people would do these things and waste so much police time. Well, we've talked a lot about Stillwell's behaviour. It then makes you wonder what makes somebody like this, what motivate their behaviour. And last summer we were contacted by a forensic consultant psychiatrist, Dr Das, who had listened to our other podcasts and said if ever we wish to ask his expert opinion, then he would contribute to our podcast. And we met him in person at CrimeCon last year and he agreed to have a, a look at the case notes that I'd written on the Joan Woodhouse murder and that's when we made contact with him. Hello everybody, my name's Dr. Shaham Das and I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist. So in my professional work, I assess people on behalf of the courts as an expert witness and, and I assess people who've committed serious crimes who have a mental illness or are suspected of having a mental illness. And in my spare time, I'm a YouTuber. I've got a YouTube channel called Psych for Sore Minds where I talk about some of my cases as well as high profile cases and just discuss anything to do with mental illness and uh, criminality. You've obviously seen the information and, and the case notes regarding uh, Thomas Stillwell, who was the suspect in the Joan Woodhouse murder. To start with, if we go through the dynamics of, of the family, Thomas Stillwell was the, the middle son. He was one of three boys. He had an elder brother and a younger brother. His father 
was 25 years older than his mother and he had served in the Navy and was described by police as drink sodden. Yeah. What kind of family dynamic do you think that that would give him? Both of those things are quite striking. I mean, the age gap of 25 years is really significant. It's not unusual for for there to be a bit of an age difference, especially for the for the husband to be a bit older. But 25 years is pretty much a, a generation. I suppose it depends on the individual character traits of the mother and father. But I, I would hedge my bets to say that the father's likely to be quite dominant, quite formal and quite authoritarian, at least in compared to the mother. And when you see dynamics like this, often, especially as the, as the whole family gets older, the father becomes a bit more kind of removed a bit more withdrawn, a bit more bossy. And then often for the mother, once they've gotten over the honeymoon period of, of feeling financially stable, the mother tends to miss out or feel she's missing out on a social life. So that would be my um, my prediction would be that that's the kind of dynamics that they were growing up in. So even though they're together as a family, I think there's probably quite a lot of distance in between the mother and the father. I imagine the mother probably wanted a separate kind of younger more fun social circle. And what about his father? How would his drinking have affected them? So I think it kind of, it depends on the amounts that he was drinking and also the degree of, of how much he was trying to hide it. So as I'm sure you'll know and your, your listeners will know, some people can be alcoholics or they can be very heavy alcohol consumers, but they can be quite functional. They can function highly. However, on the other end of the spectrum, some people whose parents are alcoholics can grow up in an environment of kind of neglect, abuse. There's often emotional deprivation. Sometimes if the parents are not focused on their children uh, because of their heavy drinking, there can be kind of a poor attempt to set morals and to set boundaries. And I wouldn't say it was common, but it's certainly common enough in, in households where there's very heavy drinking. There could be domestic violence. And as you'll know, there's a, a risk of a cycle of violence. So people who experience domestic violence as, a, as children are very likely to, to repeat that cycle on. So I'm not saying that this, this automatically makes Thomas Stilwell, you know, criminogenic, but it's one of many factors, you know, including poverty, physical abuse, etc. And And the other thing that you may think is significant about Thomas was that his father, it's suggested, didn't think that he was the father of Thomas. Yeah. That's almost kind of a rejection, isn't it? Again, I suppose it depends how his father reacted to it. So it's more than feasible that he could have taken it out on on Thomas, on young Thomas. So Thomas could have been the target of aggression or hostility. His father could have made him feel like inferior. He could have made him feel like he wasn't part of the family. There was some rumour and some speculation that actually Thomas was the illegitimate son of the 16th Duke of Norfolk. And it's said that Thomas Stillwell's mother, when she was very young, worked at the castle. Yeah. And obviously came into contact with what would then be the sort of 15, 16-year-old Duke. Yeah. So I do wonder if, I mean, there is a degree of speculation here, but if, if the Duke of Norfolk was the father and if Thomas Stillwell's father, as in his mother's husband, knew this, then maybe he had a lot of jealousy, anger, frustration, but he couldn't really take it out on the Duke because um, you, know, you, can't, you can't go after royalty. So maybe he took it out on his son instead. So the, the layout of the park is it's a 
the castle itself is obviously a very imposing, fantastic building. And of course, like all these big country houses and estates, they've got massive grounds. And it really is the back of beyond. You'd never find it unless you knew it was there. Yeah. So they lived a very isolated existence. And his mother, as far as we're aware, worked at the castle. And uh, it must that must have been quite a weird existence, wasn't it, Sam? Yeah, well, even now, there's no houses around it. Your nearest neighbour is probably... Probably a mile away. Mm. So I think I think that, that could actually be relevant. Again, it's not. I'm not saying that that's directly a factor that 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 might have caused Thomas Stillwell to become like a pervert. But it could be one of many factors. It could be the very fact that he's so isolated. You know, he goes throughout the lessons, has these natural romantic and sexual feelings, but has literally no contact with hardly any females of his age. So due to being isolated and not, not having a healthy way to share it, he develops these really weird behaviours like masturbating in public. Yeah, because that, where his house is located, gave him the opportunity to sort of stalk and roam in this part one, which is the, the point we're sort of trying to examine with yourself, is if he had these traits or mental problems that he wanted to stalk, girls approach them, yeah. Uh, even were aware that he hid so that they, they didn't even know he was there and masturbated in the enclosures of the woods and bushes and things like that. So he had the opportunity on his doorstep to to sort of roam around and, and do what he wanted, really. Absolutely. So this kind of um, leads quite well on to, on to the next question is, you know, what motivates this type of action? So in my opinion, it was a combination of lots and lots of different factors. So you just mentioned some of them yourself, John. So there's the opportunity, there's being socially isolated, there's potentially coming from quite a chaotic or at least unloving, fractured kind of family backgrounds. And then I think everybody has, when they come to adolescence, this sexual curiosity. Um, but most people have like some sort of social circle to discharge it. And I think you could say it's almost like a spectrum. On one end, you could say that he was he was just very clumsy with ways of approaching women and his kind of sexual approach. And on the other end of the spectrum is far darker. There could be actual intentions of sexual dominance and sexual assault. And he could be anywhere along that spectrum, really. So, uh, so I think that that's what's going on. And I think on top of that, there's probably some personality factors. So he strikes me as somebody that's got a lack of embarrassment, a lack of shame, a lack of guilt, a lack of empathy. So a combination of all of those things probably contributed to why he was he was doing that. And I think something else that's really significant that can't be overlooked is it, it appears that these behaviours weren't really challenged. So he was known as the local weirdo or the local pervert, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't arrested or jailed for it. So I think that probably emboldened him over time to, to, to continue because he, he thought there weren't really any consequences. And I do wonder whether back in those days, it, this was the... Was it the 40s or the 50s? Late 40s, wasn't it? Yeah, 48. Late, yeah. Late 40s. I think in those days, I don't think this kind of behaviour was acceptable by any means, but I think it was less tightly dealt with by the criminal justice system, should we say. So I think they would, if somebody had those kind of behaviours, he, he wouldn't be arrested necessarily unless he went on to do something as directly serious as you know rape or murder. But instead, I think he would just be given a wide berth by everybody. That would be the way to deal with it. Just give, you know, avoid him. He's the local weirdo, local pervert. Whereas nowadays, he would, I hope, uh, be arrested and actually go down the criminal justice route. And and from your experience, 
you know, as a broad sort of statement, does his behaviour lead to serious offences or serious offending? He's suspected of the murder of Joan, but is that a, is that a trait from this sort of behaviour? So the answer to that is it is, but only if there are a couple of other factors, so internal factors and external factors. So internal factors would be things like his actual, Thomas's actual personality. So if he had traits of antisocial personality behaviour or even a diagnosis of that, so for your listeners, there would be things like not knowing or not caring about the difference between right and wrong, uh, a lack of empathy, impulsivity, aggression, not learning from previous mistakes, not caring about punishment. So if you had those kind of internal personality traits, plus if he wasn't really getting into trouble, which I think we're, we're suggesting might have been the case. So if there's no external pressure to stop, whether that be the local community or your family, then a combination of all those factors absolutely does often lead to escalation of increasingly severe behaviour. Have you dealt with people who've progressed it to that stage of murder from this sort of background? Absolutely, yeah. So the cases that I see for serious sexual assault and murder, I, I tend to unfortunately see them further down the line. Uh, so I might assess them for a murder trial to see if there's a, if see if they've got a mental illness, and if so, whether they were actively suffering from symptoms, and if so, whether that gives them a psychiatric defence. But often, when when I look back. Uh, I see that they have had these minor charges or minor suspicions or arrests. And it's a shame to say, but unfortunately, in the majority of times, it wasn't taken particularly seriously. They might have been given a caution. Sometimes the charges were dropped. Uh, and yet, because of that, it emboldens them to escalate their offending. Obviously, Thomas Stillwell reported the fact that he'd found Joan Woodhouse's body. If he had have been involved with Joan prior to that, is is that a way of, of covering up what you have done by purporting to be the finder of a dead body? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think, I don't know how, I don't know whether Thomas Stilwell was intelligent enough to, to think this through. Uh, just, and I say that given by the fact that his statements were so contradictory and, and a bit clumsy, but potentially he was. And that is, if there is evidence against you in the scene, then you can contaminate that evidence by being the, the person that finds the body. And that's probably more relevant now than it would have been back then in the late 40s because of you know the advancement of DNA technology, et cetera, et cetera. But absolutely, I think it's, a, it's an unwritten rule that the person that finds the body is always a suspect, at least, for the police. So what do you make of Thomas Stillwell? I think it's fair to say that he's quite an odd character, from what I've read, he's, he's, he's been labelled as a bit of a pervert. Public masturbation, obviously, is quite an unusual trait. But then to actually follow women regularly and even going out of his way to follow women, I think, makes him potentially quite risky and quite dangerous uh, as a sexual offender. I mean, uh, obviously, none of us can say with certainty that he was guilty, but it certainly certainly seems that way, doesn't it? And I suppose the other thing that we've not really talked about is, is his age. So the very fact that he's still carrying out these kind of activities at the age of 24 is alarming to me. So usually pe when people are getting used to their sexuality or when they might carry out perverted actions, it's usually in their mid-teens or their adolescence. So to me, the fact that he's still doing this at the age of 24 and he's not been socialized, you know, he's not found a, you know, a relationship, a wife, or even through his own family, his parents, the fact that he's not been socialized indicates that he's probably been doing this for years and he's probably been getting away with it for years, you know, following women around, public masturbation. 
and probably hasn't been pulled up on it. It's just been avoided. Everyone's been giving him a wide berth, which, as we said before, I think will embolden him. Well, that's a big thank you for Dr Das talking to us in relation to this case. And if you want to catch up with him, then his YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash a psych for sore minds. And there's some really interesting stuff on there. So once again, we say thank you to him. And it's interesting that his opinion, however generalised, what he talks about is the dynamics of the family and the age difference between Thomas's mum and dad and also the fact that they've got a grandparent living with them. But the most interesting thing that I found is the fact that he's not challenged about his behaviour and that may give him the courage to, to continue. Yes, as you said at the time, and when I think back, you know, it's only in more modern times that we know the damage that this type of offending leads to and the damage it does to the females concerned and all the inquiries that have gone on subsequently to really serious offending. And I think we are more switched on to it now, aren't we? We, we, we people talk about know, it. We talk more, about it. And of course, we've experienced it with this case, relatives and people who knew members of the family say we, we, that we didn't talk about it then. It wasn't discussed and, you know, Lena didn't mention it to Liz Willits. The photograph until was there. Until much later in life. Yes. Whereas today it would be more in the forefront of everybody's discussions. And, and clearly, you know, I think he's right when he says, you know, people just avoided him and thought he was an odd character. And, you know, the police didn't take the involvement in sex offenders as we do today. And I think the people that we've spoken to who who didn't want to be on the podcast, what they would say about Thomas was that, no, he wasn't an educated man, but actually he was quite a wily, clever sort of individual. Yeah, I mean, the locations that we've described at, in the grounds, I mean, it's almost like animal instinct, isn't it? You know, you're hiding and going into cover in bushes and that sort of thing, basic animal instincts, and he just progressed from there and... Why nothing was ever done, we'll never know. But uh, it was quite clearly known for this behaviour, wasn't it? So I think now we need to look at how we can progress this matter. And there is one thing that leads me to think that we could maybe progress the case. I know that there's a police file in the National Archives at Kew regarding the Joan Woodhouse murder. And it was closed to the public until 1997 when it was then made accessible. In 2003, a historian looked at the file and reviewed it, and he found that there was a pubic hair that had been found on Joan's bra still within that file. Now, after 2003, that file was then closed to the public for 30 years, so it's now not accessible until 2033. Now, when we talked about it, we thought that that was really quite suspicious and there was all sorts of conspiracy theories running round our heads. However, we spoke to a, an archivist, didn't we? And, and she gave us a plausible explanation why that may have happened. And she said that although there are millions of items in archives up and down the country, the contents of each and every one aren't known in any great detail and it's only when somebody requests to see a file and they give the file 
out and then the file goes back to them, that they review it and consider it and see if there is any sensitivity about why that should be taken from public view. And clearly this is one of the ones that was identified as being sensitive because in 2003, Thomas Stilwell was still alive. So we were assured that that was the proper practice in archives. And she'd actually gave examples of her own findings, didn't she? Yes, she did. Because although she was an archivist by profession, she specialised in certain historical areas. And she said that she's found all sorts of things that they don't even know were in the files and boxes and until they opened them and looked, and she looked through them. Because there must be millions and millions and millions and millions of papers and photographs and God knows what. But I'm glad that we spoke to her because otherwise it would have been another... Conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory. And and actually she assured us that that, that is proper practice. But it was said that the hair that was in the file wasn't attributed to either Thomas Stillwell or to Joan Woodhouse. Now, as we know, crime scene investigation has moved on, as has forensic capabilities and technologies. And we met a forensic scientist whilst we were at CrimeCon last year. And I think it would be interesting to talk to her about her take on on that area, crime scene preservation and the potential for taking that hair, if it is still there in that archive, if we could in the future take that further forward. Hi everyone, my name's Jo Millington. Um, I'm a forensic scientist um, with a particular specialism in bloodstain pattern analysis. I'm currently the director of Millington Hingley, a small forensic consultancy firm and we deal with case review for the defence but also work for the, the Crown Prosecution Service. Well, thanks very much for sparing the time to come and and join us today, Jo. The first question that I'd like to ask you is crime scene examination and also the preservation of crime scenes has changed over the years, certainly since um, 1948. Can I ask you, what's changed and why have those changes been implemented? Well, Anyone that watches any sort of crime programme will know that there are a number of processes that we need to follow in order to examine a crime scene. Now, this isn't to undermine the professionalism of the police officers at the time of this case in 1948, but they would literally walk in off the street to a crime scene without necessarily taking any extra steps to protect themselves from the crime scene and protect the crime scene from them. So I think one of the main developments over the years is the use of personal protective equipment. So we routinely don various items to protect ourselves from the scene and the scene from us. So that includes coveralls, gloves, face masks, etc. And I mean, at the time, they probably maybe wore a pair of gloves just because they were familiar with fingerprint evidence and the fact that they didn't want to leave their own fingerprints in a crime scene, but that would probably be the extent of it. So even though at the time, the police officers, they probably would have taken steps to do the best that they could, it wasn't formalised, and almost certainly they didn't have crime scene teams as we know them today, scene of crime officers CSIs etc so they would have been 
police officers just trying to do their best, really. There were a number of hairs found on Joan's body and also on her clothing. In the scientist report, it attributes them to Joan, save for one pubic hair that was found in her bra. Now, the report says that that hair was not Joan's and it wasn't Thomas Stillwell's. What test or examination would there have been back in 1948 to come to that conclusion? Uh, Well, I mean, hair examination has been around for a number of decades, centuries, really. And the main thing that we do in terms of hair analysis is microscopy. So in order to do a comparison, two things need to happen. First of all, you need to recover any hairs that are extraneous on a surface. So in this particular case, hairs have been recovered from various items of clothing, etc. And and this particular hair was recovered from, from her bra. And then we need something to compare it to. So during the procedure of the post-mortem or the body examination, then a number of reference control samples will have been taken from Joan. They will have included her head hair, samples of her pubic hair, and they would have also then recovered samples from potential suspects. So in in this case, Thomas. And then what happens is we do a very sort of methodical microscopic examination of both the reference samples and the samples that have been recovered from the crime scene or from the body. And it's really a visual test. So we record a number of observations, including the colour of the hair, the internal makeup of the hair, whether there is any dye features uh, for hair has been treated if it's got any abnormal growth characteristics. And in some cases, there might be enough information for us to say, well, given the features of X, Y and Z, then this hair is typical of a head hair or a pubic hair. So it seems that that's happened in this particular case. Now, those features then of the of the hair that was recovered from the bra and the others have then been compared to the features that were recognised in the reference control samples and it appears that the majority have been kind of cross-checked to Joan and and they all fall within the, the kind of the scope of her own hair and it left this one outstanding hair. Now the difficulty is that you're very much limited in terms of your, your examination on how good your reference sample is because if your reference sample isn't representative of all of the different types of hairs that are on a person's body, then you could essentially falsely eliminate that hair as being potentially from a person because your reference sample wasn't a good or didn't properly reflect the full scope of hair types that are on that person. So whilst I accept that at the time they considered that this hair did not come from Joan, I would be a little bit cautious about that because one single hair is very, very difficult to include or exclude absolutely definitively based on microscopy alone. So if Joan's murder took place in 2022 rather than 1948, what examination of the hair would be conducted and 
how accurate are the findings when you've only got the one hair? Yeah, it, it becomes really difficult. But let's just say this, that we've developed enormous amounts in forensic science over the decades. There's no question about that. But we still do microscopy of hair. So, so you know, what we would we would go through the same steps in all likelihood that were taken at the time. We would recover a reference sample from Joan, from anybody who is a nominated individual in this case. We would do a visual comparison of those hairs in the same way and record all the features that we saw. And then the main development really is that on top of that, we could then apply forensic DNA tests. So DNA, um, as you know, is something that we inherit from our parents. But in forensic context, then we don't look at the whole of the DNA within our cells. We look at little bits of DNA that are known to vary widely between individuals. And it's those bits of DNA that can allow us to develop what we call a forensic DNA profile. Now, a hair whether it's recovered from any area of the body really, can have two types of DNA within it. The first is what we call nuclear DNA. It's within the nucleus of the cells. And so if you yank a hair out of your head and it kind of stings a little bit, then that's because it's usually pulling out what we call root sheath material from where it's a sort of stuck to the scalp. And that material we can recover very rich source of your DNA. So we can submit that for analysis and and hopefully generate a DNA profile from it. And the DNA tests that we do are so sensitive now that we can successfully recover DNA from single hair. Now, if the hair is naturally shed from your body, then usually that's because the root sheath material has started to die off essentially and so that nuclear material is is very limited but that's not to say we can't still do DNA analysis because the shaft of the hair contains mitochondria and we can recover a specialist type of DNA from the shaft of a hair and and do mitochondrial testing on that. So in this case we've got one hair and potentially you know, there is an opportunity there for us to recover DNA from it. And of course, what we would do is we would, in the same way as we need a reference sample of hair to compare any hairs to, we need a reference sample of DNA to compare DNA to. So if there was anything remaining from this case in the retained materials, such as Joan's clothing or another sample, for example, then we could recover her DNA from it compare it to any DNA that was recovered from the hair that was recovered from her bra and see whether or not it is in fact potentially her own hair. And if it wasn't, then that DNA could then be used in various ways to check against individuals or potentially submit it to the National DNA Database, depending on which test we used. I mean, that that's really interesting what you say, Joe, because it, it sounds like rather than scrap the processes that they used to do, so going back to 1948, actually mm. you've kept those processes and then added to them as technology's moved on. Oh, for 100%. I mean, if it's not broke, why fix it, right? So, Absolutely. I mean, you know, hair analysis, I mean, 
let's be honest, you know, hair, hair analysis and comparison has, has gone through the ringer over the last few years. And there was a really damaging report, the PCAST report, which was issued a, a number of years ago now. But it revealed that hair analysis and, and some conclusions that have been reported in the comparison of hairs in in cases was wrong. I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. You know, we we messed up because we didn't probably fully appreciate that you can include or exclude a hair sample based on its visual characteristics in error. Now, that's one thing. You know, the people who were reporting hair analysis in 1948 and in the years afterwards. They didn't have anything else to help them with their analysis. So they made a determination based on whatever was in front of them. And, and you know, they, they wouldn't have willingly reported a result thinking I'm going to mislead the court with this. It would have just been at the, the limits of their of their experience, the limits of their knowledge at the time. Now, you know, the beauty of forensic science is that we've now got other things that we can layer on top of the original methods. And DNA, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your approach to it, is is something which allows us to link things to people. You know, I mean, it's a very powerful tool to try and understand whether or not a biological material came from someone or not. Of course, there's always the interpretation of the evidence after you get that DNA match, because just because DNA matches a particular person doesn't mean they committed a crime. You know, we, we need to evaluate that that finding in the context of the case itself. So even if we examine this hair now, which is if it's been recovered and retained is is a definite possibility. So so let's just put that to one side. Let's say we examined it and we recovered DNA from it and we and we got the best result possible and it didn't match the reference DNA profile of Joan Woodhouse let's say it gave us an indication of a male DNA profile and we were able to attribute that male DNA profile by whatever means to a particular individual. Now, notwithstanding, it's a very old case so that the the person responsible of matching the hair might not be alive now. If that person said, well, you know what, Joan and I were in a relationship or... Joan uh, was my neighbour and, you know, we, we spent a lot of time together. She would visit the house regularly or whatever the context might be, we would have to consider that hair in the context of that scenario. Now, if we go for a cup of coffee and then I'm, I'm found in some unfortunate situation and your DNA is recovered from my, my jacket, then whilst you might be suspect number one, <laughs> If, if you tell the police that you just had a cup of coffee with me and then left me on my way, then your DNA wouldn't necessarily show that you killed me. <laughs> so we, ne- we really do need to evaluate that finding in the context of whatever the scenario is or the, the, the account that's been provided. So going back to what you said earlier, one hair, you know, is is extremely limited in itself. But at the time, had they have had DNA and had it have matched, let's say, Thomas or somebody else, then it would have given them an extra investigative piece of information that in the context of other things that were starting to come into the case, 
might have actually, you know, just substantiated something or helped them to, to sort of move their investigation forward in a very positive way. If time and money weren't an issue, then we could probably satisfy our curiosity about that hair. There are issues with that. One, we would need access to the file. And the second thing is, having listened to what Joe's got to say, that she would need reference samples to be able to compare them with. But time and costs are an issue. And the other thing that Joe mentioned was you need to take a piece of evidence like that hair into context and consider the context and the interpretation. So I'm kind of thinking, even if we did have the access and everything was in place, what would we likely get from that sample of hair? But I do think it's something that we can think about. Well, I think I said earlier that this case is really a work in progress, really, isn't it? There's, I'm sure, other things to come out of archives, be that whenever. And, of course, certainly this hair, which is now not in the public domain for another 20 years or whatever, but when it does come out of that process, it's there. And if it's still there... I mean, we know somebody who's seen it some years ago before it was locked down again. It's a potential. But as when we speak to Joe and about these matters, you know, where would it take us? I mean, is it one of Jones that technology today would have found and didn't at the time? And if there was a third person, that hair could have come from anywhere, couldn't it? You know, she shared accommodation at the hostel, who did the laundry... You know, if you stopped in a hotel and put her clothes on a bed, you pick up all these things. And as Joe says, just one hair is very difficult. But in a case like this, it, it may well be of interest to do something. And I think that's what we bear in mind for the future. Because I think this has been a real journey. Because we thought, after reading Martin's book, that we knew the story of Joan Woodhouse's murder but we've had so many leads and so many separate inquiries that we have pursued that it's led us to realise that the story that was retold over the last 70 years actually wasn't the story of the investigation. You couldn't make up what's happened, really, could you? You know, two senior Scotland Yard officers, a book that completely goes off at a tangent as to what we think was known, and now we know where that story came from, God knows. But... Spooner thought like everybody else, senior forensic pathologist, all the leads that the police followed at the time, mammoth job, a lot of wasted time through nobody's fault, they followed what they thought was the correct action at first, and then Thomas Stilwell comes under the microscope and sadly he isn't proved guilty or innocent, he's like in the mix isn't he? He, he, he's not admitted it, in law he's an innocent man, but there's so many questions that aren't answered. And I think that's what we have to think about, that actually members of Thomas Stilwell's family are still around and still, one would assume, affected by this story in the same way that members of Joan's family are still around, members of Lena Bamber's family are still around. And it's the event, it's the murder of Joan that drops the pebble into the water and all those ripples that come out, that's still having some ripple effects upon all of those families. And we'd be interested, wouldn't we, Sally, if anybody listening to our podcast can further the inquiry or help, who knows what will happen, Sally? You know, 
we could be lucky and something will come to our attention and we might be off again on this one. Before we go, we'd also like to let you know that we're back at CrimeCon this year, the world's number one true crime event happening in London on Saturday the 11th and Sunday the 12th of June 2022 and a one-day event taking place on Saturday the 10th of September in Glasgow. CrimeCon is really the ultimate true crime weekend and it's partnered by CBS Reality, the expert-led true crime TV channel. Find out more and get your tickets at crimecon.co.uk for both events. And when purchasing those tickets, use the code INVESTIGATORS to get your 10% discount. As for us, you can get full case notes for the Joan Woodhouse murder on our website. And that's truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. So we thank you for listening to this episode. And we don't exactly know when our next podcast will be released. But if you remain subscribed, then you will be the first to know. And if you're not subscribed, why not? (laughs) So we hope to have another interesting investigation to tell you next time when you listen to our podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally. The narrator was Angela Ness. It was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. You can find out more information and case notes about the murder of Joan Woodhouse by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website, you'll also be able to send us messages, discover subscription links for all podcast platforms and follow us on all our social media accounts. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoy this series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star rating in your favourite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you.